I'm Maureen Milliken. And I'm Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. And we're the podcast that... You would do if you had nothing better to do. Yes. And also, I want to say, the podcast that will never use unpack as a verb unless we're talking about a suitcase or a Oh, lunch. yes. Oh, I was going to unpack that um, <laughs> I'm, I'm so idea. fucking tired. So fucking tired of hearing that. Also, I just want to briefly mention, and I'm sorry I didn't run this by you before. Uh-oh bringing it up a new peeve i've developed Gee, I, that's so unusual you never have any peeves i know I'm, I'm trying to develop some though oh okay and listening to podcasts i will say that in almost four years i don't think we've ever commented negatively or obtusely on people's accents and lately i've noticed on a couple podcasts first i was listening to a true crime one where they were going over a cold case in North Carolina where the wrong guy had been convicted of a rape and spent, you know, decades in prison. You know how that goes. And the woman who was raped, and this was in the early 70s in North Carolina, said that her attacker did not have an accent. Now, these are people, she's lived in North Carolina her entire life and everything. But then later, the guy himself was on, and he, he had a very heavy North Carolina accent. And the host said, as, as you can see, he does have an accent. And I'm like, girl, you're from somewhere in the north, in which she said earlier, you know, um, that she had trouble understanding the accents, to a woman in North Carolina this guy may not have had an accent. Yes. How obtuse can that be? And then today yes. I was I was listening to another true crime podcast, and it's an American, two Americans, and they were talking to people who, to my ear, sounded like they had Scottish accents. And the guy, the American guy, before the people started talking, said, I just, you know, these people have some really colorful accents. <laughs> and listening to them, they had a heavy, especially this one guy had a heavy Scottish accent, but you could hear what, understand what he was saying. I'm like, how, how obtuse is it to not realize that almost everybody listening to you, whether they're in America or somewhere else, has a different accent? I know. You, I know. You know? I mean. I agree. You know, I, we, I'm sure you and I sound like we have accents to people. You know, everybody has an accent, right? So it just strikes. It just it it just the North Carolina one bugged me because it was just so tone deaf. Exactly. I mean, and I mean that figuratively, but I guess it's also literal. And then the one today, I'm like, you're insulting these people. They're Scottish, or at least the one guy was. The woman had some kind of British accent. I'm not sure what. By warning listeners that they have colorful accents that, that like listeners need this like warning to but it's anyway silly. it's silly so should we just launch into shit yes you have some updates don't i you? have one update oh okay and i maybe i was supposed to have more but it's i'm I don't really know what you're supposed to have I, I think my busyness has been well established You know what I'm saying? So anyway, that said, a lot has happened with the Breonna Taylor case. In late September, just as we were releasing our last episode, a grand jury indicted former Louisville police officer Brent Hankison for wanton endangerment for his actions during the raid, the March raid on Breonna Taylor's apartment, namely shooting blindly from outside her apartment through a patio door with curtains on it, endangering not her, 
but the family in another apartment where a couple bullets went in. So he has pleaded not guilty and no charges were announced against the other two officers who fired shots. One of who it looks like supposedly his bullets are the one who killed her. No one was charged for causing her death. It caused a lot of consternation. I didn't have a lot of time to go into all the ins and outs of this, so I'm just going to make a couple points about it tonight. Okay. After one of the members of the grand jury complained that the proceedings were being misrepresented by Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron, they released audio recordings of roughly 15 hours of the proceedings, which is a very rare instance. Hmm. As you know, grand jury mm-hmm. proceedings are private. They are available to listen to, I think, and there have been stories done on them. But today is, what, the 4th? So that was two days ago, and I just haven't had time. So I didn't want to do some slapdash thing. And so next time, I'll do something a little more in-depth. And, of course, this will have evolved by then. But I do want to say that the Attorney General didn't offer murder to the grand jury as an option for indictment. But he said they could have gone further. And, well, yeah, technically they could have. That's so unlikely, it makes me want to bang my head against a wall. I was on a grand jury in New Hampshire in the mid-90s. And let me just tell you quickly how it works, because I think people are really familiar with it, unfamiliar with it, rather. A grand jury is a trial. It's the prosecution presenting evidence. And the grand jury determines, and it doesn't have to be unanimous, whether that evidence is enough to send the charges further and try the person or charge the person. And the grand jury I was on had 22 people on it. Most of them morons, I can say now, 25 years later. But (laughs) it was awful. But but the prosecution totally controls the grand jury. And it was a long time ago. I'm sure we were told, and I think we were given a booklet on how it worked, but I can't imagine anyone sitting in that room who knows nothing about the law saying, gosh, the prosecutors didn't tell us we could indict them for murder, but maybe we should talk about indicting them for murder. And grand juries can also call witnesses that the prosecutors haven't presented. And I know that's happened in the past on some huge cases, but I can't imagine just a normal everyday grand jury, whether it's in Kentucky or the one I was on in New Hampshire or anywhere else, having the balls to do that. Mm. You know, and as I said, it's not like a trial where you're hearing evidence for both sides. You're you're hearing the prosecution present evidence. And in this case, it's interesting because it's evidence against people in law enforcement who are part of the same team, if you want to call it that, as the prosecutors. So I would feel if I were on that grand jury and knowing what I know, you know, about law enforcement and stuff, what is being held back and what evidence aren't we hearing i don't Mm. know that i'd have the wherewithal to say i want to hear more evidence but the prosecution is completely controlling what you're doing they have the power to to tell you exactly what they want to tell you now normally if it's if it's some black guy who they want to bust for drugs, you're going to hear every single fucking thing about that guy's life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, but if it's three white cops who shot a black woman and it makes them look bad, I'm not sure what you're going to hear. And I also want to say my memory of the one I was on, the proceedings were ridiculous. Like, there was a young woman, can't remember her name or anything else. I give her credit for her bravery. She came before us. She had been 
and I fully believed her, sexually assaulted by a teacher, and I assume I can talk about this 25 years later, even though it's secret, at a junior high in Manchester Ugh. after school mm. in the classroom. And she came across to me as very truthful. And yet our deliberations on it were ridiculous. Like, for instance, she mentioned her face was a little bloated, a little puffy, because she was taking some steroid treatment for, I think, a skin condition or something. And, of course, this was during the steroids madness. So people on the grand jury, some of the people were saying, well, you know, she's on steroids, so she's blah, blah, blah. And 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 I'm like, look... None of that was presented as evidence. We're not doctors. We can't determine that because she's on yeah, medication, she's not credible, you know, and just, it, and it was just idiotic things like that. And I found myself constantly having to say, that wasn't evidence in other cases. That wasn't evidence presented to us. So we shouldn't really be deliberating on things we're just speculating on oh or seeing because we watch too much TV or whatever. Mm-hmm. It was, And it was a scary look into how the justice system works. Ugh. And again, it's to indict people. That guy was not indicted. And there was another, there was one other sexual assault one. I remember this young blonde woman around the same age as the other girl whose uncle sexually assaulted her and she couldn't remember his act dates and stuff. And again, I don't think we indicted him either. But the prosecutor was much more helpful in guiding the information and stuff. The deliberations, nobody was in the room with us. The prosecutor wasn't in the room and stuff. But when the evidence was being presented, he was much more helpful on that. The huge majority of them were drug oh, yeah. things and just poor, sad sack, sorry, drug people. And I think we indicted all of them. Mm. You know, and the cops came in and bragged about, you know, how they executed their warrants and all this shit. So that's how a grand jury works. I don't trust what the process was in the Brianna Taylor one, but again, I'll have a better update next time. But I did want people to know we were on top of that unfolding uh, story. Okay. And now well, you have thank one. Thank you. Yeah. I do have one, and I was trying to remember the episode, and I can't, but it was about just about a year ago. Um, just about a year ago. Um, thank you. You know that Credence song? Yes, I, I do. Okay. Yes. But Sorry. no one needs to hear you sing it. You don't know that. Somebody may need to hear me sing, but I won't. So about a year ago, I had a main mini on Ayla Mansman, who was the girl that left the sticky note in the bathroom, the girl's bathroom, saying there's a rapist in our school and you right. know who it is. And you also had an update. Just I've had many updates. I had an update though. in August. Yeah, there was an update in August. After a year of fighting this in court, all they were fighting was her suspension. She had been suspended. The court ruled in her favor to remove that from her record. She was suspended for bullying an unknown person because she did not name anybody. Uh, you'd have to listen to the whole thing. I'm not going to yeah. go into it. And we talked about that in your last update, too. Yes. So the Cape Elizabeth School Department, as a result of, yeah, it was in August, they were... In my memory of the last update was, it was that ruling that they tried to spin to make it look like it was favorable to them. Yes, the the federal appeals court sided with with, right, um, right. with her right. over this school, and the school was still trying to make it sound like... It, Uh, they won which they didn't well anyways they agreed to remove the suspension from her record and which is all she wanted she wasn't asking for money she wasn't asking for anything but to 
be proven right in court, which she was. And I stupidly read the comments, which I'm not going uh, to... Never read this. the comments. I know, the comments. online comments. Someone was saying she was a bully. It's like, who was she bullying? Nobody. And then someone's like, oh, innocent till proven guilty, I guess, isn't, uh, you know, about the whoever she said was a rapist. It's like, well, she who didn't name a person. person. I know. Yeah. So in any case, she is no longer has that suspension on her record. They fought in court for a year. Apparently, the lawyer, Huey, for the uh, Huey. Cape Elizabeth School District, doesn't know how much she charged the school district, which I have yet to meet a lawyer. I used to work for a lawyer. I have yet to meet anyone who is a lawyer that doesn't keep track of their time and how much money they've accrued. So yeah, I no find shit. that hard to believe. If I were a taxpayer in that town even though it is one of the most wealthy towns in the state i would be a little bit annoyed that that much money went to something so freaking stupid uh. they should should not have suspended her in the first place one of the comments said something like oh it figures uh fig typical of some rich cape elizabeth person to to just keep fighting in court until they get what they want and it's like actually i don't believe she is a wealthy person no. but i do think that that maybe the person we discussed this before i don't know who this person was that took offense to her note but i suspect that that they are wealthy. they are and that's one of the I'm reasons sorry. why this went so well long. and the thing is to have that on your record can have a huge impact on your college and future prospects. So yeah. it's like having a criminal thing on your, a record, you know, when you want to get a job. So it does make sense for her if you're wrongly suspended. And it's the principle of it, it. Right, to get it taken off. She there, there's didn't nothing do anything wrong with wrong. that. You know, rich so. or poor, there's nothing wrong with fighting to, to not have some kind of black mark on your record that shouldn't be there. No, it shouldn't be there. And I have no sympathy for the person that outed himself, frankly, as a rapist no. No. by saying she was bullying him when she was not. And she said she was not talking about anyone specific. And I believe that she wasn't because, as I said before, there could be several people in any given high school that are rapists. And maybe parents... Maybe parents don't want to believe that about their sons, but it's true. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, but yes, when don't we were apologize. in school 40 years ago, it was true. Yep. It's still true now. Things have not changed. I don't have any other updates. All right. So I guess I... Would Oh, what it, I know. I don't know what you're doing this Well, week. did you I'm have so something excited. else you want to... I was going to say something about what my negative Nellie's... Well, gonna be, why but, don't we wait for that? Well, I was just going to say about men after 40 years, things haven't changed much, put it that way, and then well, we'll discuss it later. This, I think that my topic may reinforce my some hatred. of those feelings. Oh, thank you. So I'll launch right in. Yeah, you, you don't know, but you may have heard about this. You may not. I don't know. It was in the news um, this summer, but... Okay. And as with so many of our episodes... This one starts with a disclaimer that I was originally going to do something else, but then did this instead. Like, you guys care. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know we say that so often. I know. But that's how we roll. But in any case, it, the reason I'm doing this instead of what I was going to do is actually relevant. I was, I was originally not going to do it because it's ongoing, and we know that leads to the dreaded mega <laughs> updates. I know. But then I got pissed off. And I think you know me well enough to know my biggest motivators are anger and resentment. 
And um, yes, maybe that's the Irish and Italian DNA at work. In any case, this episode is not about the Jeffrey McDonald case, but that's, but that's what pissed me off. As many of you may know, there's an FX documentary right now, A Wilderness of Error, based on the 2012 Errol Morris book of the same title. That book is in response to a 1989 article followed by a 1990 book by Janet Malcolm called The Journalist and the Murderer, which, drumroll, is an attack on one of my all-time favorite books, 1983's Fatal Vision. By, jo- by Joe McGinnis. No one should attack Joe. I know. The late Joe McGinnis. I um, know. But I'm, I'm going to way generalize here because this episode, like I said, isn't about the McDonald case, but I'm launching it with this kind of mini topic here. Here's the background. For those of you who don't know, Jeffrey McDonald, Green Beret doctor, was convicted in 1979 of the murder of his wife, Colette, and his two little daughters, who were two and five at the time. It was a classic... Pregnant wife and kids are totally massacred, but the big strong husband only has minor injuries deal. On top of it, we also have the classic scrawled messages on the wall, in this case, pig in blood, thank you, Manson family, that we know from our true crime knowledge that almost every crime, every time you have something scrawled on the walls since the Manson murders, it's a staged thing. Except for the Manson murders where it wasn't staged, they were just fucked up. McGinnis, who wrote Fatal Vision, which is a fantastic work of journalism that I highly recommend, started out just looking at the case. He became convinced, as he did his professional, extensive journalism research, that McDonald was guilty. And I'll get into that in a minute. But Malcolm, Janet Malcolm, to boil it down, wrote a New Yorker article that she later, as I said, made into a book, basically positing that McGinnis seduced and betrayed McDonald by pretending he thought he was innocent and that he was going to write a book that portrayed McDonald as innocent. And then he wrote a book that portrayed McDonald as guilty. And it, it portrayed him as guilty. It didn't come out and say he was guilty. I think if you read the book, you'll understand that distinction. One thing you have to understand about journalism is that it was important for McGinnis to spend as much time as he could with McDonald to discuss what happened. He made it clear, as we'll see from McDonald from the beginning, that he was going to call it like he saw it in the book and wasn't going to fade things McDonald's way. And one thing you have to understand about psychopaths is that they think they can snow anyone and they also hear what they want to hear. Long story short, McDonald ended up suing McGinnis over fatal vision in 1984, claiming fraud. And that first lawsuit ended up in a hung jury, but there were more. A lot of stuff happened. McGinnis and McDonald first met when McDonald was charged for the second time for the murders. He was originally charged right after. The charges were dropped. He wasn't acquitted or anything. The charges were just dropped. And I won't go into all the details, but they were brought up again eight years later. McGinnis wanted to talk to him for a column he was writing, and McDonald broached the subject of a book. It turns out that he'd asked Joseph Wamba right before that, and Wamba, who was very big at the time, turned him down. He was busy. McGinnis wrote his column, and it pretty much portrayed McDonald as a narcissistic playboy with a lot of dough and a cavalier attitude despite the horrific murder of his family. Mm-hmm. 
Though Janet Malcolm later said McGinnis quote-unquote seduced McDonald into agreeing to a book deal, McGinnis pointed out if that was his aim, he wouldn't have shredded McDonald in that first column. He would have written a favorable one. You know, McGinnis said when he met McDonald in 1979, McDonald, among other things, was hungry for money, as was his lawyer, now that they were facing another trial. They agreed that McDonald would receive a minority share of the proceeds of any book McGinnis would write in return for granting McGinnis complete and exclusive access to him and his legal staff throughout the trial, and, upon the trial's conclusion, access to all documents related to the case, as well as his assurance of continuing cooperation. And McGinnis wrote this in an epilogue to a later version of Fatal Vision as well, and then he published solo Final Vision, which was a response to Janet Malcolm's article. Quote, There was no commitment, indication, or even hint that my book would portray McDonald as innocent. Indeed, having no idea what the story would turn out to be, was he a murderer or not? I could hardly have offered such assurances, McGinnis wrote. McDonald himself, testifying at both deposition and the trial of our civil suit, conceded that from the start he recognized he would have no control over what I would write. And McGinnis's agent and McDonald's lawyer reached an agreement about a week after McDonald's trial started in 1979 that in return for granting McGinnis exclusive story rights to McDonald's life, McDonald would get 20% of the first 150 grand McGinnis got for any work about him and 33% of any proceeds beyond that, which must have ended up being a pretty sweet pile of money. So can I ask a question? Yeah. We know now that there are laws restricting convicted criminals of profiting from things related to their crime. Apparently there weren't back then. Well, he wasn't convicted yet. Oh, okay. And and sense. I didn't want to get into the whole legal okay, thing. Okay, I know, but I thought people right, would Right, no, I understand that. And I'm not sure if his conviction, what impact his conviction had on that, but he okay. did end up suing Joe later. But anyway, and there was also 40% for motion picture television proceeds. Ooh. And as some of you our age may know, there was a <laughs> fatal vision made for TV movie with Gary Cole. Gary Cole. As McDonald. He's now known as Kurt McVeigh on The on Good the- Fight. And The Good Wife. Oh, and The Good Wife, too. That's right. And McGinnis got a book deal with Dell, good for him, shortly after they made that deal for both hardcover and paperback editions. And as part of the deal, McDonald had to sign a release, and this was Dell at the publisher's request, promising not to sue, which he signed in August of 1979. McGinnis writes, At no time did I sign any agreement with McDonald in regard to what the book's contents would be, nor did I ever, orally or in writing, grant him any rights of approval or review. Indeed, the whole purpose of the release was to assure just the opposite, that I would be free to write whatever I came to believe to be true. And you may be wondering, what the fuck does this have to do with anything? But I'm getting to it. But but I did, since that documentary was out, want to give good background on this so people would know. McGinnis said he came to like McDonald. They were staying in the same place during the trial and spent a lot of time together, meals, jogging, all sorts of stuff. And he believed the man could not have committed this horrific crime, the slaughter of his pregnant wife and two little girls. Here's what McGinnis writes. Yet, every day, the evidence mounted. Concrete Mm -hmm. physical evidence, unambiguous, clear. It could not be, yet it was. He could not have, yet he did. The evidence demonstrated that Jeffrey McDonald, this gracious, charming, affable man, had fractured the skull of his pregnant wife with a club, had broken both of her arms with a club, had stabbed her 16 times in the neck and chest with a knife, had shattered the skull of his five-year-old daughter with a club, Mm -hmm. 
had stabbed her in the throat eight to ten times with a knife. I guess I should say there's graphic depictions of violence for anyone who doesn't want to listen to him. Had hit her again so hard with the club that he'd shattered an entire side of her face, leaving a piece of cheekbone protruding through the skin. And then, with full awareness of what he was doing, had walked into the bedroom of his two-year-old daughter and, laying her across his lap, had stabbed her 12 times in the back with a knife and four times in the chest and once in the neck and then again 15 times in the chest with an ice pick. I can tell you one thing. There was no seduction going on, at least not on my part. There was only my struggle to hold myself together in the face of this mounting horror. To say there was ambivalence, to say there was conflict between what my head told me must be true and what my heart, for lack of a better word, told me could not be, would be to make the greatest understatement of my life. Yes, I'd been persuaded he must have done it, but yes, I cried, as did some of the jurors themselves, when their foreman pronounced their guilty verdict. Hmm. After McDonald's conviction, he and McGinnis had a prolific letter-writing correspondence, which Janet Malcolm also held against him, and McGinnis kept wondering, if he did this, how could I have liked him so much? Mm. McGinnis ended up having serious physical and emotional symptoms because of this conflict. Here's what he says about it, or part of what he says about it. This was not a question of saying, oh, well, I guess he's guilty, so probably I ought to stop being friendly and let him know what I think. We are talking here of psychological crisis of major proportion sweats chest pains the insomnia fits of depression and this Hmm. wasn't just some private nightmare i was locked into there was this book i had to write it took me a long time to accept that mcdonald could be the charming and apparently caring man i'd come to know or thought i did during the summer of 1979 and at the same time be what psychiatrist otto kernberg has described as quote An enraged, empty self, the hungry wolf out to kill, eat, and survive, unquote. My my learning process in that regard did not even begin until the end of trial. It intensified once I won cooperation from the federal prosecutors and from McDonald's in-laws, Alfred and Mildred Kassab, none of whom, incidentally, feel in the slightest betrayed, and continued until I had finished work on the book in the spring of 1983. During this period of turmoil, I was not about to sit down and kick things around with him conversationally. In her New Yorker articles, Janet Malcolm writes that my letters, quote, assuring McDonald of friendship, unquote, continued until, quote, close to the publication, unquote, of this book, by which time she says I apparently felt I could afford to be a little cold and careless. Oh, please. That statement is false. By spring of 1980, as I found myself moving beyond the magnetic Netic field of McDonald's personality, and as my research turned up new information, none of it favorable to him, the tone of my letters shifted markedly. He still was my subject, about whom I would have to learn more if I was ever to reconcile the apparently irreconcilable. As Barbara Grizzuti Harrison has written, quote, to try and print to reconcile irreconcilable differences is noble work. It is labor to be proud of. It is necessary to, and this is Joe again, it was necessary to keep lines of communication open, but because I no longer felt it, I could no longer express much personal warmth or sympathy for his predicament. I liked McDonald when I was with him during his murder trial. I felt sorry for him for months afterward and wrote him letters genuinely expressing that sorrow, 
even after I'd formed my opinion as to his guilt. Those letters, far from being my attempt to con him, represent the degree to which he'd succeeded in conning me. And this is Maureen again, and there's a lot more that shows McGinnis has written, particularly a lot of stuff that Malcolm left out or got wrong in her article and book. The article and book and McDonald's continued pursuit of McGinnis because, of course, psychopaths can't let things like that go, especially when they smell blood, and he's got a lot of time on his hands in prison, led to kind of an industry of people supporting McDonald and taking down McGinnis. Believe me, I've read articles like in People magazine in recent years where McDonald's obviously used his psychopathy to bamboozle people, and they're none the wiser. This all led to Errol Morris's book in 2012. Now, back when Morris's documentary, The Thin Blue Line, came out in 1988, I was impressed with it. It was about an apparent miscarriage of justice, and I think it was the first true crime documentary that really made an impression on me. Though I should watch it again because... It was good. Well, from what I remember, yeah. I think it's one of the first true crime documentaries I ever saw that suggested somebody wasn't treated justly. I'm not saying there weren't others before that. I'm just saying in my experience. Although, since he's considered the father of the reenactment, I may have to revisit that at some point once I can stomach him again. And I'd been a true crime fan for a long time before. I also liked The Fog of War, which came out about 10 years ago. I was a little confused in 2012 when he wrote a book, and even more confused and annoyed when I saw that it posited that McDonald was innocent and was kind of riffing off of what Janet Malcolm had written. And no, I didn't read it. I read about it enough to know I didn't want to spend the money on mm. it and that I didn't want to read it. Yeah. I saw articles by people familiar with the case that it left out a lot of the evidence and other stuff. And I find it hard to believe that anybody who does anything on that case could have done an exhaustive job as McGinnis did as far as research did with Fatal Vision. And anyone who wants to talk to me about that case needs to read Fatal Vision closely first. I think I've read it three times, at least. In any case, that all brings me to my point. In some article about the FX series, or the point that made me mad and wanted to do the topic I'm going to do, in some article about the FX series, I saw Morris said he was drawn to the case, to the McDonald case, because it was something to the effect, and this is not an exact quote, but he just couldn't believe someone like Jeffrey McDonald could have done something like that. And I'm like, like Jeffrey McDonald, how? Because he's in the military? Gee, there's a higher rate of domestic murder among military than a normal life. Because he's a white middle class guy? Because it seems like most family annihilators are white middle-class guys, because no one could do something so horrible? Well, someone did, and stats show that horrific crimes to women and children like this, with over-the-top violence, are much more likely to have been done by the husband-father than a band of zoned-out hippies who seem smart enough to not leave any evidence except pig written in blood on the wall, gee, just like the Manson family a few months before, that he'd been reading about in an Esquire magazine that was still open to the article in his living room, and because they were on drugs... Well, so was he. Memo to everyone, he was heavily into amphetamines and some other stuff. And because he's a doctor, um, I think we've seen that doctors can easily be psychopaths and kill their families too. Which brings us finally to this episode's story. Yes, if you watch Dateline, doctors and dentists seem to be constantly murdering their families. <laughs> I know. No offense to any that we might know, but... For today's story, you can thank Errol Morris and everyone else who's commented on that horrible crime and said that they just can't see, quote, someone like Jeffrey McDonald, unquote, doing it. Because someone did do it, and Jeffrey McDonald is a psychopath. 
So I know people want to hope that hippies, you know, a nice diverse group, by the way, with both genders and a black guy who looked and talked like Link on the Mod Squad, coincidentally, which was one of the biggest shows at the time when this happened. It was like Link and Julie and Pete did it. Yeah, it was. Exactly. It was like Link and Julie and Pete Except they would never do that. No, they wouldn't because we love them, especially Link because, well, Julie and Pete wouldn't either. But any, and that's we're talking about the Mod Squad TV show from 1968 to 73, not the horrific 1990s remake movie. But anyway, the stats show that the most likely person to commit a murder like that is a white male related to them Ooh. psychopath. I want to point out before I start that while Ingolf Turk, the husband in today's story, ha- has been indicted by a grand jury, he has not yet been tried. He's scheduled for pre-trial hearing in November, so, you know, he has not been found guilty. I just want to make that point. And while this case isn't like McDonald's in many ways, it's an example of how false one of the biggest defenses of McDonald's is. That someone, quote-unquote, like that can't do something that horrible. No kids were killed in this, but the mother of kids was, and she was treated horribly before she was murdered. Spoiler alert. And just in case people look at it, treating the mother of children abusively is also abusing the kids and shows a callous disregard for the kids. So, well, he didn't kill or is not charged with killing any kids and no kids died in the story. You know, it still shows quite a lack of regard for not only her children, but his children, because this was, they both had pre-marriage kids. Most of my information comes from the Boston Globe, boston.com, which is kind of digital Boston Globe light, the Dover Sherborne Press, and the Mass Life website. I'll credit any other source when I come to it. Kathleen McLean had only been married to Ingolf Turk, a well-known Boston surgeon who went Hmm. by the nickname Harry, since December, but they've been going out for nearly three years. By the night of the Super Bowl in February of this year, I always want to say stupid bowl because that's what we used to call it when I worked in New Hampshire, but Super The 45-year-old mother of three had had enough. During a Super Bowl or stupid bowl party, I guess I shouldn't call it that, alienate listeners, at the couple's Dover, Massachusetts home this year, she told family members, and by the way, for those of you listening who don't know when the stupid bowl, uh, I mean, Super Bowl is, it's the first Sunday of February. She told family members she was planning on moving out. Turk, 58, overheard her, and later when they were alone, he called his son into the room to witness it, then pushed her off his lap, saying she couldn't be trusted. The next day, February 3rd, she went to the police in Dover, Mass, to get a restraining order. While the incident the night before may seem minor, and I only found one reference to that incident and have trouble figuring out exactly what happened, but it was the final straw that broke the camel's back for Kathleen. Their nearly three-year relationship had been riddled with abuse, his of her, just to make that clear. She told the Dover police, February 3rd, that he'd recently lost his job and had become more possessive and abusive. She told police she planned to file for divorce and said she didn't know what he would do when he found out. She also told them that she told family members and two friends who are cops about the abuse in case something happened to her. She told Dover police officer Joseph Woolard that she was worried Turk would retaliate against her for filing the charges. Woolard told her that Turk had not yet received a summons, so there was no immediate threat, but that she should change the garage door entry code. He said police would perform regular checks on the house. 
Hmm. Yeah, I know. She also told Woolard, according to Boston Globe columnist Kevin Cullen, that Turk had mentioned that one of his patients had offered to kill his ex-wife. Oh, had offered? That's nice. Yeah, yeah. His ex-wife, though, not her. Oh, When he first said it, she thought he was joking, but now she was worried, Woolard said. But she declined to make a formal report about that. When police returned back to the station after escorting her to Dedham District Court to file the restraining order, Turk showed up, Boston 25 TV reported, claiming abuse at McLean's hands. Aww. Two days after the restraining order was served, McLean was back at the police station and told them Turk violated the restraining order by dropping the temperature on the home's thermostat to 54 degrees Fahrenheit, it, and it was a smart thermostat that he could do from his <laughs> from his phone, locking her out of the device so she couldn't turn the uh, heat back ass. up. And you know this is um, February in Massachusetts, so not balmy. She agreed on that visit to allow police to search her phone records for information related to her previous complaints. When police charged Turk. They cited corroborating evidence from McLean's text messages. She had texted friends about the time he allegedly attacked her with a pair of scissors in front of her son, and the time she alleged he threw her to the floor so hard her shoes came off. He was arraigned on February 6th for violating the restraining order in Dedham District Court. He entered a plea of not guilty, and it was supposed to go to court on March 4th for pretrial conference, but that ended up being postponed, likely because of the COVID-19 pandemic, which had just taken very serious hold in Massachusetts. In addition to violating the restraining order, Turk was also charged with assault and battery on a household member, her, strangulation, suffocation, and two counts of assault and battery with a dangerous weapon. Police approved the restraining order and had Turk hand in all of his guns, of which he had many, and his gun license. And Kathleen filed for divorce on February 7th. In March, Kathleen called a reporter at the Dover... Sherborne Press and discussed her fear of Turk and said the system was not protecting her. It's not clear what prompted the call, which must have been made in desperation. I can't imagine calling a reporter to tell them that stuff unless you have no other alternative. Mm. And one can only speculate that he was bothering her and no one was helping. Yeah. And I will say, though, what working at newspapers, we would get calls occasionally from people that type of thing or some other having some problem with the state or something but since the dover sherborne press apparently didn't look into it or write a story we'll never know what the details were it doesn't surprise me that they didn't write a story at the time as i said newspapers often get similar calls but it's tough particularly with low staffing levels to take the time to pursue something like that you know you need evidence you need court records you need to talk to people. It's a big job, especially when the target is a prominent surgeon. Still, if I was the reporter taking the call, I would have taken detailed notes and kept them, as I always did whenever someone called me at the newspaper. You were such a good reporter. I was, wasn't I? You never know when you're going to need them, right? That's right. On April 15th, McLean posted a picture on Facebook of the Dover home with a for sale sign on the front, as well as a picture of herself holding an anchor charm with the word hope on it. On April 22nd, as COVID-19 hit Massachusetts hard, she wrote on Facebook, I hope we are all having these moments through this pandemic. And I assume it was with a photo of, there was a photo of her kids with it. 
referring to these moments. I have found such a deep gratitude for my children, it's amazing. They may or may not remember this time of their lives once it's over, but I know I always will. This has been one of the most beautiful, cleansing, healing times of my life. Seeing my children laugh, dance, learn, and play together every day, sometimes argue, but rare, takes me back to the early days staying at home with them and enjoying who they are. I have had some of the deepest conversation with my teenagers and laughed until I'm in tears. And it's not clear how old. She had two daughters and a son, and it looked like the son is the youngest. And it looked like they were mid to very early teen. Um, She didn't have any kids with... No. What's his name? No. Okay. They'd only been together three years, or less than three years. On May 2nd, though, she petitioned that the restraining order be dropped. She and Turk were going to attend couples therapy, and he'd agreed to get solo therapy, too. They were going to work things out. Quote, I feel safe and would like to bring my family back together with my husband, McLean wrote in an affidavit filed May 2nd. My goal is to salvage our family, including reuniting with my husband as father and stepfather to my children. He also had two teenage kids, by the way. I bet her kids were pissed. Yeah. Just, just speculating, but... Yep. Shades of episode 71, our third anniversary main Murders and More episode from last November where we discuss that very thing, the woman wanting to keep the family together. So McLean ended the divorce proceedings. On Wednesday, May 13th, Turk asked a Norfolk County judge to lift a court order banning them from contact so that he'd be allowed to move back into the house in Dover. Despite the fact that McLean also asked that the restraining order she filed be dropped, there was still a court order that Turk couldn't go near her, and it was, it was part of his release agreement on the charges against him. If he hadn't agreed to that, he would be in jail on those charges rather than out on bail. Norfolk County Assistant District Attorney Michael Perillo refused Turk's request that the separation order be lifted, and the court agreed and did not drop that. Despite that, in the pandemic, in what was then COVID-flaming Boston area, Massachusetts, Turk returned to the house in Dover on Thursday, May 14th. McLean's kids, as I said, young teenagers, told police they saw Kathleen and Turk together in the house Thursday night and early Friday morning, the last sighting around 1 a.m. Turk, according to some reports, called 911 Friday to report her missing. But there's little information about that call, when it was made and stuff, and I only saw it referenced in one story. I didn't see it referenced anywhere else. You'd think if he did do that, given what police knew about him and his easily findable record, if it was made to the Dover police... And I think you have to report someone missing from their home base, so it would have had to have been made to the door police. They surely would have been alerted given the past four months. So I'm not sure what the veracity of that, the fact that he made a 911 call. But what is true is at 4.30 a.m. on Friday, May 15th, a friend of Kathleen's, and I presume at least an acquaintance of Turk's, got a strange text message from Turk. Quote, I am sorry, brother, but she is a vindictive devil and she played us all. I am really sorry, brother, but she manipulated us all. Love you, Harry. Hmm. Meanwhile, friends couldn't reach her. She wasn't responding to calls or texts. Kathleen's ex-husband finally called Dover police the night of Friday, May 15th, saying no one had seen or been able to reach Kathleen since the day before. It doesn't say in any of the stories, but my guess is the kids were trying to get her, and that's how the ex-husband, Stephen Roca, got involved. He told police he thought she was at the Dedham Residence Inn with Turk, and he was concerned. 
because of the restraining orders, blah, blah, blah. Turk had apparently been staying. He had booked a room at the hotel from May 8th to May 17th. Both of their cars were parked in the parking lot, the police saw. Police knocked on the door to his room, and when they didn't get an answer, they got a key from management and let themselves in. They found Turk with lacerations on his left wrist and a cut on his forehead, cuts on his arm and legs, which look consistent with hmm. walking through heavy brush or the woods, and he was also drunk and apparently unconscious. They also found a knife nearby. There was also a syringe, and they couldn't tell if he'd injected himself with anything, so they gave him Narcan, which helps reverse opioid overdoses. Then they took him to Norwood Hospital. They pinged Kathleen's phone, trying to find her, and it showed her phone was at their house in Dover. They didn't find her in the house, even breaking down a locked bedroom door, where they found her purse and cell phone. Police searched the area using tracking dogs and also checked local hospitals. Turk regained consciousness Saturday, and he told police that he and Kathleen had been having drinks Thursday night and started to argue. And the argument moved to the bedroom, where Kathleen... Mm-hmm. Yeah, where, sure. Uh-huh, where Kathleen hit him with a glass object. Oh, I'm sure she hit him first. Yeah, and I was just going to say that these guys always say that, not necessarily glass object, but always the woman that they've murdered always somehow provoked the argument, and it always strikes me as irresponsible that many newspaper reporters, as well as podcasts I listen to, recounting cases like this, always report the woman attacking first as though it's fact instead of saying he said she did. Exactly. Right? Because, come on, people, the guy is trying to put the fact that he killed the woman into the best possible light and blame her, and people should take his version of events with a grain of salt unless they can be supported by evidence. Anyway, six foot three, 235-pound, former Olympic decathlete Turk, said Kathleen struck him with a glass object, and he, quote, reacted to that aggressive situation, which is how the DA put it, and, quote-unquote, choked her, which I know they really mean strangled. And she was fighting back at first, but then she stopped and went limp, and he realized that he'd gone too far. Gee, I've never heard a story like that before. No, me neither. Then he panicked and, quote, needed to put her someplace. So he loaded her into the Jeep, drove her to a pond at a home that was under construction nearby, and dumped her body in the pond. He said he may have put a rock on top of her. I didn't remember. A state police dive team found her in the water, naked from the waist up, with rocks in the pockets of her pants to weigh her down. They pulled her out of the Hmm. pond at 11 p.m. Saturday night. They arrested Turk in the hospital and charged him with murder. He was arraigned that Monday by video conference and pleaded not guilty and was ordered held without bail. At the arraignment, Norfolk Assistant District Attorney Lisa Beatty told the judge that the medical examiner found that McLean had injuries and bruising consistent with strangulation. Dedham District Court Judge Michael Pomerol also revoked the personal recognizance bail set when Turk was charged in February, and he remains in jail as we record this. So who are Kathleen McLean and Engulf Turk? And how did they get to this point? Kathleen Katie McLean was born in the Boston suburb of Belmont, Massachusetts on August 15, 1974. She had red hair and bright blue eyes and grew up in Belmont, graduating from Belmont High School. She studied occupational therapy at Mount Ida College. Her obituary said that she taught at Plymouth Nursery School and loved being called Miss Kate by the kids. 
But she came into her own as a Reiki master, teacher, and healer. Her Reiki massage business was called Birch Tree Energy and Healing because she loved birches, her family said. Quote, knowing that the birch tree is a sacred ladder spanning the gap between heaven and earth, her obituary said. She also loved the outdoors, especially flowers and stuff like that. And she always had sage with her, um, which is a healing herb. She offered calmness and healing to anyone who she met with gratitude and grace, her obit said. Quote, Katie had an energy and light that drew people to her. Her bright blue eyes, fiery red hair and smile is how we will think of her and remember her, the obit said. And then it has a quote from Joseph Campbell, who I unfortunately, whenever I see his name, he's the one uh, who wrote that big whatever it's called, the something, a myth or whatever. I always think of Joseph Campanella, who, <laughs> the actor from the 60s and 70s, uh, um, but I don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we shouldn't be trivializing. Find a place inside where there's joy and the joy will burn out the pain. Opportunities to find deeper powers within ourselves come when life seems most challenging. At the time of her death, she had her three teenage kids, Sophia, Grace, and Sam. Her friend, Danielle Boland, told Mass Live, We've lost an angel, and I think it's important for people to know that. When Boland was diagnosed with thyroid cancer, McLean was one of her biggest supporters and gave her massages, never charging for them. Anyone you can ask, she was one of the most amazing people, Boland said. She spent days of healing and helping people. That was her full-time career. Anyone who knew her thought they were a great friend of hers. She took the time for everyone, said Boland. And she also said McLean was beautiful and a spiritual person. Turk! was originally from East Germany and was an alternate member of the East German decathlon team in 1980. Despite the lack of competition, that's the Olympics held in Moscow that the U.S. and 65 other countries boycotted after the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, for those of you who remember. He didn't win anything, and since he was an alternate, I don't believe he even actually competed. But yet he rides that Olympic decathlon um, cred to his... He graduated. Well, I would. I know. Yeah. What am I? Who am I to knock that? He graduated <laughs> with with a medical degree from Humboldt University months before the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. Did I say Berlin? Why? Berlin. Oh, okay. Berlin yeah. is how they pronounce it, New Hampshire. <laughs> and completed his residency at Charity Hospital in in Berlin. I'm sorry, listeners, but in New Hampshire, they pronounce it, there's a city in New Hampshire that they pronounce Berlin, and I say that more than Berlin, so yes. if I get it wrong. His supervisor was Stefan Loning, who was on sabbatical from Iowa State University to help rebuild the hospital's urology department. The Boston Globe said Turk quickly mastered the emerging art of laparoscopic prostatectomy, a minimally invasive surgery to remove a cancer of prostate. He was a master of the craft, said Loning, who is chair of urology at Charity when Turk was there. Loning said that Turk once swiftly repaired a hemorrhaging artery during a radical procedure before a packed gallery that erupted in applause when Turk was done. He came to the U.S. to Virginia in 2001 to teach doctors new techniques. At the time, he was married to a nurse he'd met in, in Berlin I'm sorry. And they had two children. Well, in Virginia, he met another woman who he married a year later. Charismatic, accomplished, and with, quote, arms as big around as some people's legs, the Globe said. 
Turk turned heads wherever he, whenever he walked into a restaurant, according to Gerald Johnson, a Virginia urologist who had gotten him to come to the U.S. Loning said he had so many followers, especially women, like a swarm of mosquitoes buzzing around him. Loning said he never suspected or heard about any abuse in those relationships. And, one wonders, why would he? Because men in high-powered careers often hear those things from women about the other men that they're in high-powered careers with? Yeah, that happens. Turk returned to Germany, but, the Globe reports, word of his surgical acumen spread through the urology world, piquing the interest of John Libertino, chairman of urology at the Leahy Clinic in Burlington, Mass., and by 2004, he was a urologist in Boston, and publications like the Boston Globe were doing features on him. Turk divorced his second wife, Kathleen was apparently his third, five years ago, and it was bitter. He lost custody of his two kids, and I assume those are the kids from that marriage and not the two from the first one, who would be young adults by now. The Globe said he, quote, lost the trappings of an affluent suburban life. Which, I, I don't know what they mean by lost the trappings, because his fucking house in Dover, which is a very affluent community, I think our cousin, who's a doctor and her husband, lived there, and they're, mm. they're, they're down to earth, they're good people, but Dover is a very affluent community, and this guy was living in a $1.7 million house, so I'm not sure what he Yeah, I wonder lost. if she knows him. We should ask her. Yeah, we should. As the years passed, Turk, while still widely respected in the field, had become less of a vanguard figure, the Globe said. Surgeons mastered his calling card, laparoscopic prostatectomy. Nice, yeah. nice job. Thanks. And robotic-assisted surgery emerged as the next frontier. Turk moved on in 2008 to head the urology department at St. Elizabeth's Medical Center in Brighton, Mass., the Globe writes that the hospital capitalized on his stardom, featuring him on a Massachusetts Turnpike billboard promoting robotic surgery at the hospital. A video profile posted to Steward Healthcare's YouTube channel showed him rolling up to the hospital on the back of a Harley-Davidson motorcycle and described him as not your typical surgeon. You know, and he was one of those guys who'd like blast rock music and perform surgery barefoot, like all those doctors on tv shows you know that uh, i'm talking about yes turk's second wife filed for divorce in 2015 claiming the marriage was irretrievably broken his friend said he fell into a downward spiral around the time of the split quote his divorce was the most painful experience of his life it was a very long consuming process a friend and former patient jack cook told the globe the Globe said the divorce dragged on for more than two years as the couple fought over their son and daughter, with Turk accusing his wife of being threatening, irrational, and hysterical. <laughs> Who of us hasn't been accused of that? Limiting his contact with the children and refusing to agree to a parenting plan. His wife said in court filings he regularly failed to show up for scheduled visits, often leaving their son waiting for hours without explanation. On one occasion, Turk brought their daughter home early, saying he had promised his friend Bob they would go motorcycle riding in Rhode Island. In reality, Ingolf did not go to Rhode Island, his ex-wife wrote, but rode by our home in Dover with a female on the back Ooh. of his bike. <laughs> yeah. okay. The divorce was finalized on May 3, 2017, with his ex-wife getting primary custody of the kids. That November, Turk was the target of a male practice lawsuit by a 67-year-old patient who claimed that he knowingly failed to remove all the cancer cells while taking out his prostate. The patient, who was 45 and a father, died a year after filing the claim. That lawsuit has yet to be resolved, the Globe says. 
Turk also met McLean in November of 2017, and a short time after, according to the Globe, he insisted she sell her house in Sudbury and move in with him. Ugh. Yes, she ended up doing that, and in March 2018, she and her three kids moved into his $1.7 million Dover home. She later said in court documents that Turk made her quit working when she moved in. In private conversations with friends, McLean said he had a massive ego and overbearing nature, which some Duh. friends took right, which some friends took as warning signs of something more sinister. No shit. Warning. Yeah. Because those are usually euphemisms, just like hysterical is a euphemism for a woman trying to be heard, overbearing and massive ego are euphemisms for a controlling man. He worked over a lifetime building up that character of a nice guy all star surgeon, said Larry Corcoran, a family friend. McLean, by the way, ended up hiring Corcoran as a bodyguard this past March. Corcoran told the Globe, she and I agreed that he had a severe God complex. It wasn't until later down the line that she realized he was a narcissist and had total control over her. One report said a friend likened the environment McLean lived in to the one that Julia Roberts portrayed in the film Sleeping with the Enemy, which uh, I've never seen, not being a Julia Roberts fan. You hate Julia Roberts. Right. So I'll just have to take their word. It would have been nice if they had explained more what that meant. But anyway, the friend said, the house was totally spotless. He treated her like a slave. He expected her to keep the house hospital grade clean. Everything had to be in its place. Turk also regularly monitored his wife's weight, the friend said. I was going to ask about that because she lo- she's a very attractive woman. I looked at pictures of her and him. She looks uh, young and very attractive, right. so I'm assuming, she, yeah. She was 45. Well, I don't think she was, if you look at any photos of her, she's obviously incredibly fit. I don't think that was from him badgering her. I think she was a, a fit person. She, you know, she was... Uh, no, I'm was, sure she was in shape and, right, and everything, I'm but I'm sure he kept on her all the time right. and made her feel like shit about her right. looks, even though she's right. pretty. What I'm saying is she was incredibly fit and did not need some guy telling her how to stay that way. Her occupational therapist license expired in August 2019, and she didn't renew it because, as I said, I don't know if she was practicing occupational therapy, but, you know, and she had had her massage business, but as I said, when she moved in with him a year before, a year and a half before, he had made her quit working. Turk, speaking of not working, saw his last patient at St. Elizabeth's on May 31st, 2019, nearly a year before the murder. In November of 2019, he was ordered by the state attorney general's office to pay $150,000 for repeatedly improperly billing MassHealth, which is Massachusetts' uh, Medicare Medicaid system, for surgical procedures that never took place and office visits he never showed up for. As part of his settlement, Turk agreed to implement a multi-year compliance program at his own expense if he con- if he wanted to continue to practice medicine and get his license back. It had been several months since he had practiced medicine, and I think that once they started investigating him, they um, made him stop, you know, until that was resolved in November. After he lost his job, he didn't leave home much, and McLean said he was becoming more possessive and abusive. On December 7th, of last year, he told McLean, I'm the king of the castle, and you are just the guest here. He then cut some of her hair and sliced her hand with the scissors when she tried to protect Hmm. herself. Also, it's not clear if that was during the same attack or another attack within days of that. They got into an argument while they were in bed, and he slammed her head into the headboard and then began to strangle her. He held his hand over her nose and mouth. Hmm. 
while putting his other hand around her throat and squeezed until she passed out. During the incident, she screamed and one of her kids heard her. Days later, though, he surprised her with a marriage certificate. And they went to Las Vegas to get married in a drive-through ceremony. No! Why? In in his divorce affidavit, and I only read in one article that he filed for divorce in January, and it's confusing to me, but in his divorce affidavit, he wrote that the wedding was preceded by, quote, the consumption of several martinis. In January, McLean said he picked her up and threw her to the ground during an argument, prior to which he called her multiple times while she was out getting a massage. And when she got home, they got into an argument and he picked her up, threw her to the ground and so hard it knocked her shoes off. And then he later said, no, you're remembering that wrong. You slipped and fell. After many of the incidents I just recounted, including that one and the one in December where he tried to strangle her, he told her he loved her and they quote unquote became intimate. Uh, Which I don't want to assume too much, but my guess is she was just trying to, if she acquiesced (laughs) to that, she was just trying to diffuse the situation. McLean also told police that Turk owned guns and that while they were arguing one time, she believed she heard him unlocking the safe where the firearms were kept. The buttons made this beeping noise, but she told police she hadn't actually seen him pull one out. He said in divorce filings that within weeks of the marriage, he realized it was a mistake and he met with a divorce lawyer on January 31st. I think that must have been divorce filings related to the one she had filed a few days later, which we're going to get to. I only read in one place that he filed for that he met with a divorce lawyer on January 31st. I didn't read that anywhere else. And I also read in a couple places that she had said that within weeks of the marriage, she thought it was a mistake and had been telling people that. So I'm not sure if there's confusion among the articles or what. There were several legal documents that some of these newspapers and stuff got hold of, police reports and the divorce affidavit, Unfortunately, I could not find them anywhere online, and I don't like to rely on other people's interpretation. According to the one article that I read where he met with a divorce lawyer, it doesn't say filed for divorce, but met with a divorce lawyer on January 31st, he broke the news to McLean two days later, which would be Stupid Bowl Sunday, and he says that that's when he broke the news to her. And like I said, I only read that one place. And so that brings us to the incident on the Super Bowl and what I talked about earlier, her visits to the police, him being charged, etc. I um, had mentioned the smart thermometer incident. He had also put tracking software on her iPhone. It's not clear if this was when they were together or after the Super Bowl when they split up. And during the divorce proceedings, the Globe reports... It says the two fought over ownership of McLean's home in Dover, but it was his home. And I'll get to that more in a minute. I, it's, it was another confusing thing where I'd like to see the affidavit. And it says she wanted her children to continue going to school in Dover, so she wanted to continue living in the house, but it was his house. That's my interpretation of that. Her kids all had individualized education plans, and she liked the school system, which I don't blame her because, as I said, it's an incredibly wealthy community, so one has to believe the schools are very good. When she agreed to drop the divorce at the beginning of May... 11 days before her murder, he agreed to put her name on the deed of the house. Yes, interesting. Of the murder, loaning the guy in Berlin said he must have completely fallen apart. 
The Boston Globe reported after his arrest that those who knew Turk professionally said they were stunned by the allegations and that they never could have imagined him capable of such violence. They described him as a cool and collected Arnold Schwarzenegger lookalike who enjoyed downhill skiing, cigars, and motorcycles. Gosh, I guess they were never married to him. (laughs) I know. John Libertino, chairman of urology at Lee Clinic in Burlington, who I mentioned a few minutes ago, said, I was actually blown away. I've done about 4,000 radical prostatectomies with him. His attorney, Howard Cooper, told the Boston Globe that Turk's former patients had reached out to him in support after news of his arrest. Dr. Turk has long had a reputation as an extraordinary physician and surgeon, Cooper said. The number of people he has helped and whose lives he has saved over the years include people from every background, every nationality, every religion and race. I have seen people reaching out to me, telling me that Dr. Turk saved their lives. Well, some reports say he became abusive after he lost his job, making it look like he was normal and then just snapped. That's a misinterpretation. A friend, John DeLima, told the Boston Globe that McLean in the past had told him that Turk was angry and very controlling and that he put his hands on her. Another friend told the Globe that Kathleen's main reason for returning to Turk was so her kids could continue on with the lives they had built in Dover. The friend implored her to stay away from Turk forever. Quote, I told her it was going to be like a fucking Netflix special, the friend said. He already tried to kill you. His life is falling apart. He is drinking heavily. The guy is a powder keg and you cannot do this. We often hear how it just doesn't seem like the guy people know when something like this happens. Like Jeff McDonald. As we talk about a lot here, it's because people ignore red flags. There are many red flags that domestic violence advocacy and support groups use that we've heard about in this report. Like embarrassing, putting somebody down about their looks and stuff. Doing things, acting in ways that scare you. Preventing you from working. Blaming you for the abuse. Acting like it's not really happening. Intimidating you with guns, knives, or other weapons. Shoving, slapping, strangling, hitting, threatening to hurt and kill you. Then there's the other stuff. The kind of psychopath stuff. The love bombing. Where, like, the whole thing getting her to marry him after a week of horrific abuse. That glibness and charm that fool people and more. Norfolk District Attorney Michael Morrissey said in a statement after the murder that he reviewed his prosecutor's handling of the Turk case and is confident that they made the right legal decisions, including not letting him drop the bail condition that he stay away from McLean as long as the domestic violence charges were pending. Quote, Our domestic violence prosecutors and advocates receive extensive training and have substantial experience in the dynamics of violent relationships, including identifying warning signs and sometimes cyclical nature of those relationships, Morrissey said. Some of the most difficult and complicated cases we handle are those involving family violence. Patricia Hole of Voices Against Violence, a Framingham Mass-based domestic violence nonprofit, told the Boston Globe that the information McLean provided showed how the surgeon had exerted emotional and physical control over her, including, like I just mentioned, the surprise marriage certificate after an incredibly violent assault a week earlier. Hole said Morrissey's office should have asked for a dangerousness hearing, which would have put Turk in jail for 90 days without bail. Quote, I don't want to judge anyone, she told the Globe, but there were red flags in the history of this case, and the biggest one for me is strangulation. Strangulation is practice for homicide. It's a big, big red flag. Did she say it like that? (laughs) Well, that's how I believe she said it, given my reading of the 
Quote, Kathleen McLean's murder was the first in Dover in 25 years, and the Globe said it shook the police department. Quote, she sought help from the system. The system gave her the help. He was able to manipulate her one final time, Police Chief Peter McGowan said. The victim is absolutely not at fault here. Domestic violence perpetrators are skilled at manipulation and capitalizing on any vulnerabilities that their victim has. Hull, the domestic violence advocate, said it usually takes seven tries for a victim of domestic violence to leave and to break out of the abusive relationship before she succeeds. Quote, whether the abusers are doctors or not, they are master manipulators, she said. In May, the Reverend C. Maxwell Olmsted, senior pastor at the Dover Church, which is a United Church of Christ, said McLean's murder is a call to action and to talk about community. Quote, this is a clear call for all of us to try to do something for the safety of women in our society, he said. You may not know, but the most dangerous place for women in the United States of America is in their own homes at the hands of their partner. And talking to neighbors, it is quite clear that people were well aware that this was moving on a trajectory of violence, and it is not just acceptable that women can live in fear of their partner. Olmsted is one of the few men I've heard calling this out. And especially, you know, and when men do call it out, they tend to cite, well, I have a daughter or I have a wife. He's the first man I've seen in a long time calling this out of his own volition. As we discussed in our last episode, in the case with Bianca Devlin, you know, it's women making the point about domestic violence and toxic masculinity and the treatment of women, and we know how women are listened to, you know, it has to be important to men, not because they have daughters or wives, but because they recognize what's happening. Exactly. But what's more normal is what Turk's attorney, Harold Cooper, told People magazine, quote, I cannot comment on the pending charge. I can't say that Dr. Turk is a renowned physician and surgeon. Over the years, he has saved the lives of many patients suffering from serious illness. His life story is one of great accomplishment, all of which is utterly inconsistent with the charge brought against him, unquote. And so we come full circle. Just like Jeffrey McDonald, how could we think a guy like this would do something like this? Turk was indicted in July and entered a not guilty plea to murder August 19th. The case is scheduled for a November 10th pre-trial conference in Norfolk Superior Court. Ooh, we'll have all sorts of updates then. Yep, I get so frustrated, as I'm sure you're aware of anybody who's listening, if they weren't before this episode, that when the biggest defense of somebody is a guy like that wouldn't do something Ugh. like that. And like even the doctor saying, you know, he's his he's had this extraordinary career. Things were going his way. He was a fucking rock star. He had everything he wanted. He got every woman he wanted. He got everything his way. When things stopped going his way, that's true with a lot of controllers and psychopaths, when they can no longer control what's going on around them is when they get violent. And I've heard Laura Richards talk about it often enough that lots of times these guys don't necessarily have a history of violence. They haven't had to. Turk hadn't had to. He got to do what he wanted. He got to treat her like shit for almost three years before she finally decided to go. And I have to believe, you know, and I'm just speculating, if he did claim to have seen a divorce lawyer in January, it was a ploy because he knew she did not want to leave that house. And she didn't want to take her kids out of that school system. So it was another control ploy on his part because he saw how she was beginning to react 
to his yep, abuse. Exactly. Hmm. And I have questions about some of the stuff, you know, some of the information. I'd love to see those court documents. Yes. But, you know, as you were saying, not even knowing what I was going to talk about, you know, how things don't change in 40 years. No, and, they and don't. granted, this was not a Jeffrey McDonald-style murder, but the whole thing, if you are a white, middle-class, or upper-middle-class male who has some kind of prestigious position that gives all the other men little woodies, you know, because, yeah. ooh, he's a surgeon, ooh, he rides a Harley, ooh, he's a Green Beret, ooh, 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 then they're not going to see him as an abuser. It's not like people can't compartmentalize their lives. Maybe he's the best surgeon in the world and, and his patients think he's wonderful. Right. Right. And I'm not saying there was any ulterior motive for him being a great surgeon. Obviously, no. though, he got a lot of accolades for it. He got off on that. You know, he's not going to be just another run-of-the-mill surgeon if there is such a thing. And you notice, like that whole thing with defrauding uh, Medicaid, when things started not going well for him, the armor fell off, you know? He didn't have to defraud Medicaid. I know. You know. I mean, even if he wasn't, even if he had to pay his wife a lot of alimony or whatever, you know, he was still living in a 1.7 million house. He was still a surgeon. Don't tell me he wasn't making a ton of dough. And you know what? I know. And a normal person, if... Oh, uh, geez, I'm not making as much money. Maybe I'm not the rock star I was anymore. Now I have to pay alimony. Sell the 1.7 million house in Dover and maybe get a $600,000 house in Weston or something. You know, I mean, what the fuck? I know. That was very good. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Now, do we have some recommendations from you? Yes. Let's do it. <laughs> Okay, so this week I'm doing my Negative Nellie's Watching on I'll Be Gone in the Dark on HBO. And I have not watched the whole series. I've mm -hmm. watched the first two full episodes and I'm in the, in mm -hmm. the midst of the third. I just want to say I won't... Uh, we can discuss it when you've watched the whole thing. Okay. But I watched it. I'd have to look back at the text I sent, which I probably wouldn't be able to find. But my thoughts about it... The last one or two episodes changed some of my thoughts about it. So I just okay, it. but this is my negative. I know knowledge. it is yours. Yes, it is. And and so a lot of the stuff would be the same, I think, unless the quality of it really changes. But yeah, some of the other ones might change, and I reserve my a right to. I will update it. You do. You do research. So if right. you don't know, I'll Be Gone in the Dark is based on Michelle McNamara's book from 2018, I believe. Yes. It was published after her death. She actually had not finished writing it when she died. Mm. And I read it when it first came out. We did an MNW. Good. We did. Oh, we did. Yes, it was very good. I don't know too. if both of us did, but I know I did. Yeah, I think it was just you. I think it was just you. And I, every time I see her, I just feel so bad that, well, the fact that she died so young, but also that he, she never got to see him caught, and it was so, so close to after I she know. died. I it know. wasn't even like it was years later. It was like so close. I know. Oh, spoiler alert. Yeah, <laughs> they caught him. Because it's about the Golden State Killer, which I don't like you. 
Yes, exactly. I'm sorry. It was a, It's about the Golden State Killer or Eurons, if you're into the old <laughs> name. As many people have said, the worst, worst, the worst serial killer I know. It's, ever. it's stupid. They should have yeah. forced him to keep it because Golden State Killer is too good a name for that yeah. piece of shit. <laughs> Tell so, us how you really feel. <laughs> <laughs> Let me go through our negative Nellies. Yes. Number one, bad reenactments. I'm not taking any points off. There are some reenactments, although if I were you, I would take a full point off because there is somebody making tea in the B-roll. That's not the really reenactment, so that's later. That would probably be Yeah, I think that was during a week I saw three different true crime things that had people making tea, and that was one of them, and that's why I came I to my tea rule, yes. But the reenactments they have are, I wouldn't even call them reenactments, like there's a voiceover of Michelle, because there's a lot of interviews with her, which I'll talk about later, and it's showing like just the back of someone's head or someone's hand you know, typing on the computer or something. So it's not, uh, so I'm not going to take off any points. And even if they were, they're not bad. They're just, you know, filler. So something behind the words that you're listening to. And also a lot of the narration, the only narration that voiceover that you would hear as far as somebody kind of narrating would be reading from the book. And that is actress Amy Ryan is reading. The book is in first person. Michelle's talking about her life as part of the book. So Amy Ryan's reading that, and I don't have any problem with that. So no, She does a good job. I'm a she big does, fan of She her. always does a good job. Yeah. I'm not taking any points off for reenactments. There are any bad ones. Narrative cliches, No. I would say the opposite because there are, it's almost like it's showing like clips from back in the 70s about how, what women should do to prevent rape and they're very anti-victim, anti-women. So it's kind of like, I think it's in a way making you as the viewer think, oh my God, you know, so even though people do still blame the victim, which I will talk about later, I think showing those films about you know what's this woman doing wrong oh she's walking down the street by herself in the middle of the night you know she did this she did that you know what i mean yes or does it make like i said there isn't really a narrator except for michelle mcnamara so there are no narrative cliches she's a very good writer the book was so well written the part she wrote the part she wrote right? yeah <laughs> she does not use narrative cliches three would be racial gender obtuseness no not on the documentaries part obviously in context of the times there is but it's not it illustrates what's going on at the time which was the early 70s in these episodes i would say no some characters may suffer from it or the people they interview i haven't seen any yet but I'm going to reserve, you know, my judgment on that because I don't know if upcoming people are going to be obtuse. The documentary itself doesn't have anything. So, so far I have not taken off any points. Number four, lack of good visuals. I would say the opposite is true. If I could give an extra point, I would. I think the visuals are really good. There's a lot of lot of archival news footage, which I think is great. There's drone and aerial views of the area where the crimes took place and maps showing where they took place, which I think is really helpful. And there's a lot of interviews with Michelle. McNamara and the victims of the crimes talking about it 
in present time. And even though I had heard, like, Case Files did a series on this killer, and I read her, Michelle's book, and I've seen other things about it. I think seeing the people and stuff, especially now talking about it, I thought that was, like, I think if you read the book, uh, I think you'd really enjoy seeing the interviews with people. Uh, missing Pieces, not yet. Although it's hard to say, like I said, first of all, since I read the book, I might already be filling things in in my head that I I wouldn't necessarily notice were missing. But also, since I haven't watched the whole documentary, I, I'm not sure yet. Inaccuracies, yeah. anachronisms, no, not so far. It is nice to see all those old film clips, people's yeah, hairdos like and stuff. Um, that woman, Carol Daly, I think that's her yes. name. First of all, she still looks she looks really good now. She and, was a but, police detective, by the way, for the listeners who don't know. No, but she, uh, she, her hair was so big. Uh, storytelling, <laughs> I think the storytelling was great. I love the fact that it kind of follows along with the book, and the only narration is the book. You know, the voiceover, it kind of blends in well but i think that it also they i think they make really good use of the archival footage as far as what's going on in the book you know it's kind of following along the book and like um when she talks about michelle mcnamara talks about the murder of the girl in her neighborhood when she was young and they show like news clippings from that stuff like that so and the interviews with Michelle and her husband, Pat Oswald, is her husband. She talks about him in the book, but he doesn't have a voice in the book. But I think his perspective and his voice now is helpful since she's she's dead. So I'm going to say I think the storytelling, the way they did it, was really good. And you're probably going to bring this up, but I like this part of that. They made really good use of texts between the two of them. Oh, yes. Yes. I didn't have that in my notes, but yes, I thought that was good. Her phone, just, th they used a lot of stuff that she she kind of talked about in the book but instead of having someone just reading the book yeah they had him there to kind of fill in that part of it about her daughter you know stuff yeah. about her family life and stuff freshness i'm gonna say yes there's i'm not taking off any points because even though it's a well-known case Anyone that's interested in true crime has heard of it, probably. And there's been so much written about it. I, I think the main thing for me is all the footage of showing the things from the time and stuff was fresh to me. The storytelling was really good. Right. Well, also freshness. It's her point of view. It's her story as well. It shows what she was doing, you know, and how she did it. Yes, And exactly. her relationship with her mother and how yes. that played into things. So it was a very fresh way, I thought, to tell it. Although I haven't gotten to that part yet. Oh, sorry. Okay. Although it was in the book. Beating the drum, I'm going to take half a point off because I got kind of tired of hearing how obsessed she was with the case. It's like, I know mm. she was obsessed with the case. We know, we know, we know. And that the people, not necessarily her, but other people acting like it's this weird phenomenon that somebody is obsessed with true crime yes. when it's not. And you'll see in the my upcoming one that I'm going to be doing, maybe mm -hmm. not next time, but soon, mm. people have always been interested in crime. It's not something new. It's not like, oh, in the last 10 years, right. everyone's got Millennials it. didn't invent it with podcasts. No. no. So I gave it 9.5 points. Oh, nice. So far, I am very much enjoying right. it. I, may, I forced mom to watch the first episode with me. Huh. I don't know if she liked it or not. She watched it. Well, that's um, good. She doesn't I, know anything about it. Uh, yeah, I know. don't want to say much because yeah, I want you to watch the whole thing first. 
But the things you liked about it, I did too. It's very well done. I mean, it. I feel like it is fresh. It's it's a new way of, uh, and or a different way of looking at it. You know, it was right? Enjoyable and it's to watch. it's faithful to her book without yes. just having it be the book. You yeah, know? exactly. Like in the book where she talks about how she and Patton got together. In the doc, they have him talking about it, and they show yes. him on stage talking about it, and they show mm-hmm. photos of them. You yeah, know, I and, liked that part. Yeah, yeah. And I much prefer something like this to if they had made some kind of dramatic oh, God. Uh, biopic uh, about uh, it. That would have driven me it nuts. Would, it would have been brutal. It would have been so, brutal. Oh, that's I, good. So far, yes. Okay. We... Oh, yeah. Can't think of anything else. And we're on like social media. (laughs) Yes, we are. Not a lot, but we try. We try. We try. Once we get both get fired from our jobs, we'll probably have more time. Well, they'll listen to this, and I'll be gone in the dark. You'll be gone in the dark. Yeah. But but the the only issue I would have with getting fired is I need to be able to pay my mortgage and stuff. Yeah, that is a thing that we have to do. Yes, if there were some way I could pay my... my problem is health insurance. Yeah, that too. That's also an issue. Yeah. But um, that's a discussion for another day, not at almost 11 o'clock on a Sunday night. Oh, wow. Yes, I'm tired, so... Unless it's time time to say goodnight. (laughs) Yes, it is. And it is. So you can find out whatever you need to know about us at Crime and Crime Stuff Online. Stuff. Yes. And we're going to have some, please, if you become a patron, there's all sorts of goodies. Well, I just want to say we have to restock our stuff. We have some new patrons and you'll be getting your stuff shortly, but we have to order some more. Yeah. So we'll we'll be doing that and... Yes. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. And all of our supporters, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Yes, we do. we will be back in two weeks. Yes. Because we're very regular now, aren't we? Yes. Like a clock regular. Yes, not like a poop regular. (laughs) Poop. (laughs) Okay, well, I guess that's... Okay. Good night. Thanks for listening. That's what he said. <laughs> That's what I just said. Are you still there? Yes. Oh, you know what? Before... What? What? Why are you saying yes? You asked if I um, was still here. I figured here. out what it was doing. You asked if I was still here, and I okay, said yes. Okay, okay, okay. Calm down.